math never came easy to me. And I think that what happens is, as young women, we feel like things are fixed, right? I'm either good at math or I'm bad at math. My first memory of math and science is really at the kitchen table with my father. And I just remember, like, sweating as my father asked me, like, you know, what's two plus two? And so he's probably shocked that the girl who couldn't, you know, add two plus two is now running an organization to build the next generation of engineers. This is The Venture, a branded podcast from Virgin Atlantic and Gimlet Creative. In this series, we profile pioneering businesses that change the face of their industries and talk to the people who made them possible. I'm your host, Ashley Milne-Tite, and we're taking this journey alongside Virgin Atlantic, a company that embodies the entrepreneurial spirit and celebrates challenging the status quo. Today, a woman who went from struggling with math at the kitchen table to running an organization that hopes to close the gender gap in the tech industry. My name is Reshma Sajani. I'm the CEO and founder of Girls Who Code. Let's start with some stats. According to Girls Who Code, only 5% of tech companies are led by women. So a critical sector of the American economy is led almost entirely by men. And we can see this disparity long before we get to the CEO level. Women hold just 18% of undergraduate degrees in computer science. Back in the 80s, that number was 40%. And Rashma Sajani has a theory as to why girls don't go into tech. Here she is giving a TED talk about it last year. So many women I talk to tell me that they gravitate towards careers and professions that they know they're going to be perfect in. And it's no wonder why. Most girls are taught to avoid risk and failure. They're taught to smile pretty, play it safe, get all A's. Boys, on the other hand, are taught to play rough, swing high, crawl to the top of the monkey bars, and then just jump off. And by the time they're adults, and whether they're negotiating a raise or even asking someone out on a date, they're habituated to take risk after risk. They're rewarded for it. It's often said in Silicon Valley, no one even takes you seriously unless you've had two failed startups. In other words, we're raising our girls to be perfect, and we're raising our boys to be brave. Rashma has always been brave. It wasn't easy growing up like in a Midwestern town in the 1980s being brown. Her parents are from Uganda. They fled in the 1970s when the dictator Idi Amin ruled the country. Rashma's family is Indian, and Amin threatened mass executions of anyone in Uganda of Indian descent. And the U.S. granted them refugee status, some of the lucky few who got it, because they were engineers. That's how Rashma found herself growing up in Schaumburg, Illinois, a small town outside of Chicago. The move was really hard on her parents. My mother, when she wore a sari, you know, to the local Kmart, she would get, you know, made fun of for the bindi on her head. And um, I learned from a very young age that I had to stand up for myself. Middle school's rough. I got called a haji, and instead of getting on the bus, I was like, all right, I'll meet you in the schoolyard. And I got pretty badly beat up. By the time she got to high school, Reshma knew who she was and what she looked like wasn't going to change. So she turned her focus to academics, and she knew exactly how she wanted to use her hard-fought knowledge. I wanted to be a lawyer. I saw Kelly McGillis on The Accused, and I just thought she was awesome. 
You know, she was like this fierce female, like, lawyer that was fighting for other women, and that's what I wanted to do. And because she was different, she thought she could prove herself by being the best. And so naturally, she wanted to go to the best law school in the country, Yale. I also knew that, you know, Bill and Hillary Clinton went there and half the senators in the United States went there. If I was going to be somebody, then I needed that credential. And that's where I was going to go. But it wasn't that simple. She applied and got rejected. So she applied again and got rejected. She applied a third time and got rejected. Still, that didn't stop her. When I get something in my head, I won't let it go. I just had it in my head that that's where I had to go, and so I was going to keep trying and keep trying and keep trying and keep trying. It, it was very, very painful because that's all I wanted. Reshma's persistence landed her a meeting with the dean of Yale Law School, and she got him to agree to let her transfer in if she aced her first year at Georgetown, which she did. She had talked her way into her dream school, but it came with a very high price tag. She graduated with more than $300,000 of student loans. Walking out of Yale Law School with that much debt from, you know, undergrad, grad school, law school was frightening. That's when she took her first job as an associate at a top corporate law firm. Most of her clients worked on Wall Street. I remember I got my first paycheck and it was $10,000. And I was like, holy cow. Like, and my parents were like, oh my God, like this is one fifth of what my parents made an entire year. It was crazy. So I got seduced. You think that you can go work at one of these fancy places for a couple of years and take the golden handcuffs off and then you can go live your life. But it never ends up happening that way, does it? Reshma was living the American dream. She had a good job with a great salary, but after six years, she was burnt out. In reality, my day job was protecting, you know, banks, and it was killing me. I was tired of coming home every day in the fetal position. I mean, I think I was in a very dark place, and I felt very trapped. And I felt like all the decisions that I had made in my life that had led to this point were not opening the doors that I thought would open. And I was tired of um, working for people whose values I didn't respect. What Reshma really wanted was to find a way to do work that was more meaningful to her, but she couldn't figure out how to do that and pay the bills. So she threw herself into her pro bono work. She defended people unjustly accused of terrorist activity under the Patriot Act, and she worked on John Kerry's 2004 presidential campaign. But even then... It was just not enough. But in 2008, a wake-up call. 14 million people took a mortgage in the last three years. Seven million of them took teaser rates or took piggyback rates. Mm -hmm. They will lose their homes. This is crazy. Just watching homes being foreclosed, and I'm like, where am I standing right now? That was gut-wrenching. The looming market crash coincided with Hillary Clinton's first failed run for the presidency. Rashma had been hard at work supporting her campaign, And it was this combination of events that set Reshma on her new path. To those who are disappointed that we couldn't go all the way, especially the young people who put so much into this campaign. I remember watching Hillary Clinton's uh, concession speech and she had this line where she said, Always aim high, work hard, and care deeply about what you believe in. And when you stumble, keep faith. And when you're knocked down, get right back up. And And I literally felt like she was speaking to me, and so I decided to quit. 
Rashma quit her corporate law job and decided to run for Congress. What did your loved ones and your friends say when you told them you wanted to do this? I think my family was like, great. I think other people probably thought I was crazy. Um, I didn't know any better. I thought I could shake every hand, like, this is exciting. I, you know, I want to run a disruptive campaign. We can use technology. I want to organize young people. I want to organize people of color. I want to organize women. For the first time in my life, I felt like I was actually doing what I was meant to do. And I was like, I was operating for good. When Reshma makes up her mind on something, there's no stopping that. This is Nahal Mehta, Rashma's husband. Basically, you can try to help and support or just get, get out of the way, you know? So I think probably most of the time I was getting out of the way. Nahal and Rashma met while they were working on President Obama's 2008 election campaign. He helped out on her congressional bid. And so when we would go to, you know, travel to L.A. or San Francisco, friends would throw events for us just to fundraise for her in New York. And so I think that's one thing I realized that she's truly special is her ability to really inspire and connect with large groups of people and get them super motivated, you know, to fight for what she believes in. Rashma was only 33 years old when she ran. The insular New York City political class considered her an outsider. And she was running in the primary against longtime incumbent Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney. On all counts, she was an underdog. It all felt nerve-wracking, but it also felt very exciting and liberating at the same time. I can't explain it. It's like these dual emotions of like being in the thick of your passion and in the thick of your fear. I like feeling afraid and nervous and anxious. Reshma was also the first Indian-American woman to ever run for Congress. Reshma knew the deck was stacked against her, but she also really felt she had a shot at winning the seat. I thought I had the better ideas, the better message. I thought we needed new blood. The day of the primary arrived after almost a year of campaigning, and the results were devastating. She got 19% of the vote. Not bad for a newcomer, but still, it was a harsh defeat. Do you remember what you did the next day? Oh my God, yeah. I remember I got up, and I was so terrified to look at my phone because I was like, Twitter will be giddy with my loss, right? And that felt painful that I had just let so many people down and that people were, I felt humiliated. People close to her weren't used to seeing Rashma so down. I'll never forget that day. That was the first time I saw her, I think, in that much real pain. She was crying, crying herself to sleep. First thing she said when she woke up is, what am I going to do now? And that was like heartbreaking for all of us. We're like, whoa. You know, I went back to my room and just put the covers on. The woman who had always had a plan no longer had one. After the break, how Rashma turned her loss into a win for 40,000 girls. You're listening to The Venture, brought to you by Virgin Atlantic. My name is Katie Allen. I'm a flight service manager and I've worked for Virgin for 30 years. Katie has worn many hats over the past three decades at Virgin Atlantic. She started out as a flight attendant. Now, in addition to her day job, she's doing something she never thought she'd do. She's part of a team that's building an app that will help Virgin Atlantic cabin crew take even better care of their customers. 
And like many of the young women in Girls Who Code, working on a tech project was something that felt really foreign to Katie. At first... When I started the project, I was very, very nervous, but I hadn't really, really got involved in any computers or personal devices, and it really was all a little bit over my head. So part of being involved, I just thought, I need to have this challenge, I need to be in it on the ground. But I was able to learn how to do it, and then I was able to show other people how to do it, and I've really quite surprised myself. Virgin Atlantic, where taking on new challenges is all in a day's work. To learn more, go to virginatlantic.com slash the venture. Welcome back to the venture. In the fall of 2010, Rashma Sajani was back to square one after quitting her corporate law job and losing her race for Congress. But there was one silver lining. I mean, I think the thing is, is that I lost and I didn't die. She gave herself three months to grieve, and then she would move on. I think it's important to just give yourself time to stew, but have a finite time on it. I was going to give myself until December 31st to just whine about it, cry about it, ask over and over and over again. I drank a lot of margaritas, I talked to a lot of people, and I felt sorry for myself. And then on January 1st, I was moving on. And I did. One of the people she talked to was current mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio. Back then, he was the public advocate. He asked her to come work for him. Reshma embraced the new job. She helped found the Dream Fellowship, the first ever scholarship program for undocumented students. She worked on campaign finance reform, and she organized sessions on entrepreneurship for immigrant business owners. Reshma was finally living her childhood vision of pursuing justice and fighting for people's rights. And as she travelled the five boroughs visiting schools and rec centres, she remembered a pattern she'd observed while running for Congress. I would go into some schools in the Upper East Side that had robotics labs and computer science classes, and they were, like, filled with boys. And I would go into other schools in, like, Queens, and uh, there would be, like, 500 kids using, like, one computer. Still, barely any girls. And so I was just curious like, where are the girls? And that's when she started to follow the thread. Why is the founder of Facebook a dude? Why is the founder of Twitter a dude? Like, you know, why are there all these men building these products? In true Reshma fashion, she was supplementing her incredibly busy day job with an ambitious side project, writing a book. It was about her experience with failure, woven with advice from powerful and successful businesswomen. For the book, she landed an interview with Beth Comstock. I'm Beth Comstock. I'm a vice chair at GE. Beth is one of the top executives at General Electric, a company with about 300,000 employees and around $124 billion in revenue last year. Beth is also the first woman to hold this particular position at GE. With Reshma, it was sort of energy and deep right from the beginning. And you knew she, I knew she was different. She sits down, she's um, just fiery energy. And in two seconds, she has you hooked. Reshma turned her meeting with Beth into an impromptu pitch session. She told Beth about an idea she had to solve the problem of women in tech, teaching girls to code. I remember her saying there's this challenge that, um, that girls aren't entering science and technology the way they should be. And that just resonated. I know we have a lot of great science and technology at GE, but I knew we needed more women. So that resonated with me. 
She's like, oh my God, that sounds awesome. How can I help you? I was like, well, I'd like $50,000. And the fact that she had identified the problem and organized a way to go after it, why wouldn't you want to follow that? She just makes it so darn compelling. You feel like you have to be part of it. Just like that, Reshma had the backing of one of the most powerful companies in the world. There is no one I've ever met who knows how to make things happen than Reshma. This is Trina Dasgupta, a longtime friend of Reshma. She's watched her build Girls Who Code from scratch. She's a founding board member of the organization. People will feel like they need to be fully prepared and ready before they have a conversation. They almost talk themselves out of doing something. Whereas Rashma's like, I'm just going to do it, you know? And that doesn't mean she's not prepared. She is prepared. She's just not waiting for something else. Because the truth is, when we say to ourselves, I need to do X, Y, and Z before, it's really just our fear talking, right? And she doesn't have that. After Beth Comstock, Rashma turned to the connections she'd made over the years in politics and in the tech industry. It was the right names who gave us then small amounts of money that created a perfect storm. Heavy hitters started coming in. The founder of Twitter, Jack Dorsey, and its then-CEO, Dick Costolo, were both early investors. Then came Google, eBay, Microsoft, and more. You have to remember, at this point, it was just an idea in my head. This was before I launched my first program. So they were just going on this crazy Indian woman who had just walked in, who wasn't a coder, telling you that she had an idea for a summer program that she was going to put together. But not everyone she talked to was on board. One person who will remain nameless, who was a pretty prominent venture capitalist, and who was like, I just think, nah, I think there's an aptitude issue. Like, I think that boys and girls are just wired differently. Don't think it'll work, Reshma. And then, you know, I said, thank you. And then as I left, gave him the middle finger and then did my thing. I very much tried Girls Who Code not to start a movement, but to like do an experiment. It was just one pilot program in a friend's conference room where I handpicked my first 20 girls. And it was after that summer, I was like, oh, wow. Like, this is, this is it. That first summer program was 20 girls from around New York City. They spent seven weeks together in a conference room. Rashma talked friends of friends into volunteering their time to teach the coding workshops. And she wanted to make sure the group was really diverse in terms of race, income background, which high schools they went to. The vast majority of them didn't have computers at home or at school. And none of them knew how to code. Reshma wasn't even sure if they would show up. I think I gave them each $50 that summer because I was like, there's no way they're going to stay and finish this program. They're going to like want to go swimming or something instead. But it was powerful. Like not only did they learn how to code, it was the problems that they wanted to solve. One girl wanted to help women in her neighborhood make websites for their businesses. Another girl wanted to build an algorithm to detect cancer. And because of the support she'd gotten from the big tech companies, news about the program spread fast. Twitter posted about Girls Who Code on their blog, and it quickly started trending. Reshma got an email from Facebook's Sheryl Sandberg asking how she could help. The idea picked up like that. Because it was obvious. I don't think Girls Who Code was like an aha moment. Everyone knew that we should be teaching girls to code. You know, I don't think I invented something. Um, but we put it together, you know what I mean, in the right way, and that made sense to people. Was there any resistance or kind of question mark over the fact that you didn't yourself have an engineering background? No. Isn't that shocking? I don't even think I had questioned it. In some ways, running for Congress unleashed the bravery muscle in me. And it's like breaking a habit. Like once you start 
to be brave, you just are always brave. And so I was like, had the chutzpah to start an organization called Girls Who Code when I did not code. By the end of 2012, Girls Who Code was up and running. The following summer, they accepted 80 girls into the program, and then they expanded to after-school clubs around the country. Before Girls Who Code, I, I didn't even know what code really was. Sophie Hauser was in a Girls Who Code summer program in New York City in 2014. Like, I had no idea what it looked like or, like, where you did it. Like, I didn't know if, if it was, like, a Word doc situation. Um, so Girls Who Code was my first ever introduction to coding. There, she met a girl named Andy Gonzalez. I'd never been in an environment where I was learning to code and also around only women. Over that summer, Andy and Sophie teamed up on a coding project. They'd been talking about how video games are all pretty much geared towards boys and how normal gun violence is in these games. And so they thought, why not create a game about menstruation, something that actually is normal? I had an idea for a game where a girl throws tampons at people. And so I said it, and we, like, at first laughed about it. And then we started just sharing stories, and I and we realized that we both felt really uncomfortable with our periods. And, like, we realized that that was actually really strange and not at all how it should be. The game they made is called Tampon Run. The game is pixelated and two-dimensional. Imagine the original Super Mario Brothers, but with tampons instead of fireballs. Once they posted Tampon Run online, it became an internet sensation. Everyone from Teen Vogue to The Today Show to Fast Company to BuzzFeed featured it on their sites. It touched a nerve. Andy and Sophie even got a book deal. Here's Andy. Tampon Run is probably one of like the first times I've really like stepped forward as like this like feminist and, and activist. Knowing that I can make whatever I want with code has just generally made me like a lot more confident and a lot more outspoken. It opens up doors to to creation that I didn't really realize existed until I started learning to code. Sophie and Andy are now in college, where they're both majoring in computer science. Most of the time, they're some of the only women in their classrooms. Girls Who Code taught them about computer science, of course, but it also taught them the lesson at the center of Reshma's life and work. Failure is key to success. Here's Sophie. A huge part of coding is you fail over and over and over again, and then you figure it out, and then you just feel like so incredibly good about yourself. And that process has taught me to not be so afraid of failing, and that if I fail at first or I'm struggling, that that isn't a sign that I'm naturally bad at something. It's just that is the process of doing anything. Today, just five years later, Reshma's ambitious pet project to solve the problem of women in tech is well underway. Girls Who Code operates in all 50 states. By the end of this year, 40,000 girls will have gone through the program. The goal for next year is to reach 100,000. And growing so fast is hard, but Reshma says it's necessary. You know, we had 7,000 applicants for 1,600 spots for our summer program. I think we reject eight, eight out of every one applicant. That, that sucks. Like, that's not what I want. It's hard, you know, to grow. You can only grow as fast as you can grow. Like, I want to solve the problem, and then we want to move on to the next problem. So, you know, when you operate a business or a nonprofit from that mentality, it's very different. And what's at stake if Reshma's experiment of bringing girls into tech doesn't work? 
according to GE's Beth Comstock, everything. Well, what's at stake is our products aren't going to be as good. We serve customers around the world. They expect us to keep them ahead of change. And the only way you're going to do that is have diverse minds. And um, so it's just that simple. That's what companies get out of it. You get innovation. Reshma Sajani has spent her life being unafraid of standing out, unafraid of trying too hard and of failing. Now she's created an entire movement to pass those ideals on to tens of thousands of other young women throughout the country and even the world. But this isn't just about empowering women to be brave. It's empowering them with skills, skills that she fully expects them to use. Rashma has big plans for her girls. You know, my girls are going to solve the world's most pressing problems. You know, finding a cure to cancer, thinking about the, the top innovations, doing something about climate change. Those are going to be my girls. And they're 16. Imagine when they're 24, 28, 32, like what they're going to be doing. The Venture is a co-production of Virgin Atlantic, Gimlet Creative, and Filio and & Partners. We were produced this week by Nicole Wong, Julia Botero, and Tom Cody, with help from Rachel Ward and Caitlin Delena. Our creative director is Nazanin Rafsanjani, and our editor is Wendy Daw. We were mixed by Andrew Dunn. Our theme song was composed by Bobby Lord and Matthew Ball. Special thanks to Tarika Barrett, Kevin Lawler, Johan Garcia, and Helen Altshuler. Music for this episode is courtesy of West One Music and Marmoset. You can play Andy and Sophie's game at tamponrun.com. You can learn more about The Venture at virginatlantic.com slash The Venture. And if you're enjoying The Venture, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell us why. It really helps other people find our show. Next time on The Venture, something a little different. A live panel of entrepreneurs with Richard Branson. There's a very, very thin dividing line between success and failure. And Mm. for most of us, you're, you're battling just to stay the right side of that dividing line. That's next week on The Venture. I'm Ashley Milne-Tite. Thanks for listening. 